Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Daf HaShavua as we study Maseches Chagiga, Daf Tezayin. I want to begin with a piece that is found on Daf Tezayin Amin Beis, connected very briefly to the Acher discussion that we concluded last week, and I heard so many amazing comments from the listeners and Purim. This is just a way of setting us up for today, a little agarita, and we'll connect it to some halach lamasa. The Gemara discusses in the Zugos section, which is on Daftezayin Amid Beis, when we begin the new Mishnah, and apparently we've moved uh, well beyond the Acher discussion, the Gemara discusses one of the Zugos, whose name was Menachem, and he is a contemporary of Hillel, he leaves, Yatza Menachem v'nichna Shamai. And the Gemara says, Lehechan Yatza, where did he go? And we end up with a machlokas between Abaya and Rava. Abaya, bringing us back to our Acher discussion, says, Yatza Latarbas Ra, he apparently went into a bad place. There are all different views about what exactly happened to him. Someone suggests he became a Baisusi. We know that Stukum and the Baisusim find their way onto our daf. Some suggest another type of uh, breakaway movement from Yahadus. And Rava says that Yatza Lavodas HaMelech. He left the job of being uh, one of the Zugos, a Nasi Abbezdin, and he goes to work for the king. And this situation seems to be that it is King uh, Herod. So the Gemara concludes that Shmanim Zugos Talmidim Levush and Sirkin, that many he had 80 uh, pairs of students that followed him. There's an incredible reading of this Agadic section from the Ben Yehoyada. The Ben Yehoyada I've mentioned before, the Ben Yishchai, the Yosef Chaim, who was a great Rav in Baghdad in the 19th, early 20th century most famous for his parish, for his halachic work, Ben Ishchai. But we have a combination of two different works that he wrote on Agadita, the Ben Yehoyada, which we're going to use today, as well as the Benayahu. In the Ben Yehoyada, he tries to combine these two sheets of Abai and Rava. And he says that he went to work for the king to try to defend the Jewish people against many of the terrible enactments that Herod put into effect against the Jewish people, against Torah. <clears throat> and other members of the Sanhedrin and Rabbanim criticized him because while he was trying to do something positive to get involved in government, he ended up leaving the world of Torah from a technical perspective, not that he left observance, but he was no longer involved in Torah as his profession. And they were critical of this, even if there was a good cause. Now this, I thought, related, I didn't see anyone make this connection, to a very fascinating Gemara Masechus Megillah. What the Gemara is trying to promote, and actually a Halach Lamasa discussion, is to make sure that before leaving the world of Yeshiva, we make all the proper shikulim, all the calculations because of the need for Talmud Torah to be so dominant. And this is practical for someone who's going to work. Not that they shouldn't go to work, 
but how much of our lives will be dedicated to Torah? Or is there an awareness that when we're leaving the world of Torah, there are risks that are at play? And this is what comes up at the end of Megillah Esther and Perak Yud. He was rutsly pleasing to the majority of his brethren. I'll give a shot later in the week in a different context of what this means, but the way it's explained in the Gemara Megillah, it's no coincidence that it's also on Daf Tezayin, Ahmed Bey's, but this is a Masechus Megillah. And he says, because some of the Sanhedrin was upset with Mordechai, that after the story of Purim is over, at least as we have it in the Megillah, Mordechai stayed in Persia as part of the government, and he didn't go back to be part of the Sanhedrin in Eretz Yisrael, or go back to the Torah world in Eretz Yisrael. Now we know why Mordechai stayed around. Esther still had to live with the Menovo Achashverosh, and he continued to lobby for the rebuilding of the Beis Hamikdash in Yerushalayim. So the same that the Ben Yehoyad is pointing out over here, it is a subtle criticism, but also at the same time an understanding of the complicated decision that has to be made. It doesn't mean it was the wrong decision but to understand that even good decisions at times come with sacrifice. That's my setup, and that's the combination. It's not the Tarbus Ra, Chas V'Shalom of Enacher, but sometimes to serve Klai Yisrael, you may have to give something up. And realizing that when you give something up in the service of Klai Yisrael, what you're giving up is very important, and to try to give up as little as possible. There's another piece of Gemara on Dav Tezayin Amit Beis that also connects to a halachic discussion, a very tragic story about Yehuda ben Tabai. He felt responsible for the death, the execution of someone. It's the whole story in there with the assumption that this individual was a stuki but didn't necessarily deserve death. So what Yehuda ben Tabai would do is he would go to this individual's grave and he would cry, begging for forgiveness. Many of the people thought that the screaming that was taking place at the grave was coming from the nifter, and Yehuda ben Tabai says that, no, it was actually coming from me. The Ben Yehoyada raises a discussion that got me thinking about a halachic connection to this in a Gemara Masechah Yoma. The question that the Ben Yehoyada is bothered by is why wasn't anyone coming with this great Yehuda Ben Tabai into the cemetery? And he talks about how they were concerned they didn't want to go into the cemetery, especially at night, so they had to rely on his testimony of what was taking place. But what's happening here with this going to visit the grave? So I didn't see this connection made by others, but I think it's pretty clear that this, this brings us to Gemara, Talmud Bavli Masechas Yoma, Daf Pezayin Amad Aleph. The Gemara tells us that in order to receive atonement from the Rebbeinu Shalom, we need to 
receive atonement from our fellow human beings, or at least ask for forgiveness in different ways three times. The Gemara there says what happens if the person who we're seeking forgiveness from died. This is the Bavli version of it. Maybe Asar b'nei Adam umamidan al-kivra v'omer chatasi l'ashem. Yerushalmi has a slightly different version in a couple of ways. One of the ways is he does the Yerushalmi, this is Perikhes Halachazayin, doesn't require a minion to go, just as from an individual perspective. This is, finds its way into the Rambam. And this is one of the great tragedies that we see today. If a person ends up, Rahman Aslan, losing a loved one, and they haven't been able to reconcile, so there's at least this mechanism out there. It seems from the Rambam that it actually is a way to achieve forgiveness. This is the Rambam in Hilchas Tshuva, Perik Beis, Halach Yud Aleph. Hachote l'chavero, umeis chavero, kodem shiakash yivakesh mechila, mevi asar adam. So he talks about the whole ceremony that has to take place. When you look at some of the Mepharshim on the Rambam, including the Mabit, we know the Mabit wrote a Sefer Sefer on Tshuva. One part of it is, is related to Tshuva, but he also wrote a parish on the Rambam, Kiryat Sefer, and there in Hilchus Tshuva, the Mabit, Ramosha ben Yosef Trani, doesn't seem to say the same as the Rambam, that this whole going to the cemetery achieves atonement, but it's at least showing your humility, and therefore you're less subject to getting additional punishment from the Rabbana Shalom. This is at least my reading and some of the way others would read them a bit. It's not as far as the Rambam goes, but it's definitely a positive thing to do, and it seems to be what is happening over here with Yehuda ben Tabai. I mean, Yehuda ben Tabai actually fits in very well or better with the Yerushalmi than he does with the Bavali, but the Ben Yehoyada tries to explain why people wouldn't want to go along with him. But either way, this is something, unfortunately, I've seen in action, whether it's for a particular sin that an individual didn't get to ask their loved one for, or not even a loved one, a friend, or if it's a general relationship. The reason that I'm pushed to think that the Rambam says that this is actually a way of having forgiveness, which means the the deceased is granting forgiveness, or it's considered as if the deceased is granting forgiveness, because the Rambam puts is is describing this in the context of what happens if you steal from someone, or you take money from someone, you have to return it to them, and then you could go on to achieve atonement from the Rabbana Shalom. And the same thing here as well, so he puts these different halachas together as mechanisms for achieving complete atonement from another, as well as from the Rebana Shalala. So you will not find this Gemara, usually in Hilchah Shuva discussion, but I think it is important to make this connection. I want to deal briefly with something on Amad Aleph that finds its way into a statement of the Gra. The Gra, we know, the Vilna Gaon has a parish on the Shulchan Aruch. And in Yerdea Kuf Ayin Tes, this Gemara and a similar Gemaras are invoked relating to Shadim, demons. 
the Grah was uncomfortable with the position of the Rambam, which I could give you a number of sources for, where the Rambam did not include any discussion of Shadim, demons, mazikin, within his Yad Chazaka. The Grah felt the Rambam was wrong about this. You could see a discussion, clearly the position of the Rambam, <coughs> in a relatively uh, recent shuva of the Shol Umeshev, in Chelek Dalit, I intest our version of Rav Shol Nathanson, Shol Umeshev. And basically the way the Rambam perceives these things are more of a psychological anxiety. The connection actually to Pesach is uh, very clear. You know that in general, if a person davens in a shul on Lel Shabbos, this is found in uh, Shulchan Aruch and Hilchah Shabbos, if a person's davening in a shul, so you're not supposed to walk home alone. There's an issue of mazikin being out there Friday night. Again, to the Rambam, this would be a perception of vulnerability. Um, Pesach night, we don't have such a concern. It's one of the reasons that we don't have to have additional tefillos after Marev so that everyone walks home at the same time to protect each other, as would happen on Friday night on Lel Shabbos. And the way I like to explain the position of the Rambam is that Lel Shimurim is a certain bravado, a certain confidence. There are a number of halachos that we're not going to get into now of not locking one's door, I'm not saying the entire Kriyashma Alamita. But just to point out, that gra becomes an important anchor in this discussion of yeshedim, no shedim, mazikin, no mazikin, how much is perceived, how much is anxiety, and how much is reality. There are a number of other halachic issues that come out of our sugya. One of them, which is very fascinating, which we're not going to discuss now, is the question, is it better to sin in a discreet way or publicly? Each one has its uh, positives and negatives associated with it. At the very end of the Gemara, there's a Tosfos that I think we're going to connect to next week when it discusses women and smicha. This is not women and rabbinic ordination, but women's chiyav or option to do smicha on a behemah ties into a much broader discussion of mitzvah and whether women have to make brachos when doing mitzvahs that they're not obligated in. This in particular is not a mitzvah but the discussion is related. But I want to end with something that's found on Tezayin Amid Aleph. When we learned Mesechas Tanis way back when, we discussed some of the issues relating to looking at Kohanim while they were duchening. It's really not a technical problem. This Gemara is a proof to that as well because it was only a question, Bizman Beis Hamikdash, when the Shechina was there and looking at a certain area. But still the practice today is not to do it. What I want to deal with is another piece within that Gemara of not looking at the Keshet. The Keshet is the rainbow. This ties into what we've been studying for the last four or five weeks of not contemplating too much what exactly is going on in this world or beyond this world. This is the way the Me'iri and others explain this. The histoclus here is not necessarily a looking issue, but the question of trying to understand exactly how God issues justice in this world, what's beyond us, 
and to really focus on what we have to do in this world, deal with issues of emuna, but don't get confused in things that we're not going to understand anyway. But as some of you pointed out to me on Shabbos, this seems to be a stira, this seems to be a contradiction with what every kid learns in yeshiva, is that when you say a rainbow, you say a bracha. So how do you deal with the fact that you're not supposed to look at it? So you could take the Meiri's explanation that it's a question of contemplating, it's not an issue of looking, but the way most poskim explain it, there's obviously a responsibility to say a bracha when you see a keshet. We'll list out some of the halachas in a couple of moments, but if you notice what it says over here is histaklut. Histaklut is staring, looking very closely, which leads to thoughts that go beyond what the rational mind can understand. But to see it and to appreciate it, and therefore to give a bircha shevach to Hashem for the beauty of this world, and to learn some of the basic lessons of the keshet going back to the mabel, that is not only an option, but that's a chi of a requirement. The bracha that is associated with seeing the keshet, with seeing the rainbow, some of you are studying Masechus brachas as well, it happens to be this week's daf, daf nun tes amid aleph. It's codified in the Shulchan Aruch, in Shin, sorry, in Resh, Chaf, Tes. And the Mishnah Bura discusses it as well, actually relating back to this Gemara, that the problem is staring at it, not the appreciating of it, just taking a, a little more than a glance and looking at it. And the brach is, Rechat HaShem HaKinem HaKolam, Zocher HaBris, V'Nemon B'Vriso, V'Kayom, B'Mamaro. The question that is discussed in Halacha, one of the questions is how much of the rainbow must you see? Some are of the opinion that you have to see the entire rainbow in order to make the, make the bracha. There has to be a total appreciation. In the Ber Halacha, which is one of the works by the Mishnah Bura, he goes into different details as far as how much has to be seen. We generally assume that as long as you see a significant part of it, then that is enough to rely on in order to make the bracha. The Mishnah Bura does say straight out, going back to our Gemara, that you shouldn't stare at the rainbow, look at it briefly, and then you end up making the bracha. Obviously, you're not going to be able to make the bracha before seeing it. It may not be there by the time you see it. And we're talking about a bircha shavach. The Mishnah Bura over here, if you want to look for some more details, is in Reish Chav Tes, Sif Katan Hey, also, in Reish Chavtes, you look in Sif Beis, has a discussion on this and a lot more to say. So the Gemara here is not addressing the technical bracha piece, but you have to look at such a statement in the Gemara that says, don't look at a rainbow or don't stare at a rainbow, and how does that reconcile with Halacha Lamasa? Have a great week of learning.